Make sure to watch The Ringer's live reaction show, Talk the Thrones, this coming Sunday. Andy Greenwald, mother of dragons Mallory Rubin, Chris Ryan, and our very own maester, Jason Concepcion, will be coming to you live after the East Coast airing of the Game of Thrones finale. Talk the Thrones will stream exclusively on Twitter and Periscope right after the episode ends and can be found on the Ringer's Twitter handle, at Ringer. Our Thrones experts will be reacting at the same time as you, contextualizing the events and explaining everything that just unfolded. Again, the show is called Talk the Thrones, and you can stream it live after the East Coast airing of the Game of Thrones finale on our Twitter and Periscope, at Ringer. And today's episode of the Ringer MLB show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get the SeatGeek app too, you could be anywhere, and with just a few taps, instantly find seats. I'm planning on catching Paul McCartney for the umpteenth time when he comes to the Barclays Center next month. You can use SeatGeek for that, because SeatGeek doesn't end with sports. It also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. No matter what event you're attending, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com, and I am joined, as always, by my fellow staff writer, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? A little sick, a little under the weather, but I'm podcasting through it. Well, if you're ailing, you must be a good pitcher, because uh, <laughs> all of those, every single good pitcher in Major League Baseball has gone on the DL over the past couple weeks. Yes, I'm not seriously injured enough to be a good major league pitcher. Although some of these are are ten day DL jobs, right? We've yeah. got the the standard Dodgers ten day DL appearance for you, Darvish. Yeah, I I saw you, Darvish DL and panicked for about twenty seconds before I remembered <laughs> that. Oh yeah, if you pitch for the Dodgers, yeah. you're going to go on. It's, you know, because it's just how they, a rite of passage. It's like a yeah. initiation ceremony. Right. You have to go on the ten the, day the ten day taxi squad. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in in spite of your illness, it's a nice day because uh, left-handed pitcher Eric Skoglund, who, <laughs> until I looked at his baseball reference page, I thought was Eric Surkamp. These are, in fact, different people. They are not the same guy. Uh, but he became the first Kansas City Royal to wear uniform number 69. Yeah, I think this is very a, nice. a big development. A nice decision by Skoglund. And we just researched the history of MLB players who've worn the number 69 using the handy uniform number lookup at Baseball Reference. And it's not a long or distinguished history, although there are more recent entries on this list than I, I would have expected. Yeah. Actually, Skoglund, who is just making his, his first appearance in the majors, is not the only player this season to have worn the number 69. Daniel Ortiz on the Pirates has also been a number 69 wear. And this is a tradition started by Louis Medina of the Cleveland Indians in 1988. So that's what it goes back Louis to. Louis Funky Cold mm. Medina. Does that? That song isn't from night. <laughs> no. That's not. I, I got to look yeah. this up. Make sure that. <laughs> the interesting thing here is that only one player has ever worn the number 69 for more than one year. And that's Bronson Arroyo, who wore it for three years back at the turn of the century. And then he switched numbers. So everyone else other than Arroyo right. has either not lasted long enough to wear it for more than one year or decided to start wearing a different number. Bronson Arroyo figured out this was funny in yeah, 2000. Curve. And I think the rest of Major League Baseball found out it was funny, starting with looks like Eric Fryer <laughs> in 2011. Yeah. Um, if So if you had given me that item blind, that uh, or if I had given you that item blind, who is the only person to wear number 69 for multiple seasons, how many <laughs> guesses do you think you would have needed given all of Major League Baseball history before you got to Bronson Arroyo? 
It would be less than 10, right? He's one of the likelier candidates, I would think. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that I, I don't know if it's, it's a particularly bold move, I guess, for a rookie who is just making his major league debut. This seems like more of a, a veteran move. Like once you have that status in the clubhouse, you can switch to the number 69. If you're just making your first appearance in the majors, I guess it's a good way to announce yourself and send a signal that you're not going to just be the meek rookie who's sitting in the clubhouse and, and not speaking unless he's spoken to you are Eric Skogland. He is, yeah. he's making waves already gonna be have no intention of being an up and down guy (laughs) all right (laughs) all right so uh let's go to the junior league world series the the home of america's next generation Mm, of great college baseball players where uh pennsylvania's jack regenia i i apologize to to him if i'm mispronouncing his name went over the fence like over the fence to to rob a home run ball which shocked I think surprised both of us that this was ruled an out as well as the manager uh, of the Chinese Taipei team. But if you you haven't seen this, you should you should go look it up. Yeah, it's so impressive that at first I actually thought it was some kind of viral video marketing campaign like that Gatorade ad from almost 10 years ago where the ball girl makes the incredible climbing catch on the wall mm-hmm. or or that Evan Longoria one, which was, I think, yeah. a Gillette ad where he just barehands the, the foul ball hit right at him. It, it looks like one of those because it seems unreal. So well done to to young Jack. <laughs> Did I get Jack's name right? Yes, Jack. Jack. <laughs> All right. Next on the on the agenda, uh, we need to go over to the binge mode podcast and bar their bells. I know. Because I was the Giants, say the same thing. Yeah. The Giants have been eliminated from National League West contention. <laughs> Which <laughs> we've seen this coming for a while. It's a milestone in every season. This this happens when we can start crossing teams' hopes off. And as you noted to me earlier, they are still in wild card contention. So don't don't give up on yeah, these Giants. Still yeah, not, Giants fans. Still not even in last place in the uh, in the National League. That's the um, the mm-hmm. team that beat them this afternoon. That knocked them out. The Phillies in a relegation scrap, a six pointer, <laughs> as they would say in soccer. So they've mm-hmm. still got the number one overall draft pick to play for. And of course this as you might have expected, says way more about the Dodgers than the Giants. Yeah, what's the Dodgers' magic number right now? It looks like the Dodgers' magic number is 20 Mm. right now uh, based on their lead over the Colorado Rockies. So they could have, it is theoretically possible for them to have the division locked up by Labor Day. (laughs) That's that's something. That's some like mid-50s Yankee shit. (laughs) Yes, it is. I always cherish magic number season, but it feels early. (laughs) That doesn't, doesn't happen usually this early in the season yeah all right so let's uh let's go to Araldis chapman who Mm. has been removed from the closers role who has pitched just this afternoon pitched multiple innings before the ninth which uh we know makes him extremely happy yeah entered in the sixth inning and uh he seems to have accepted this demotion and and earned it with a a few blow-up appearances this month but yeah, I mean, he, he clearly has been less effective than we've seen him in the past. His strikeout rate is down to a still very impressive, but unimpressive by Chapman standards level. It's, it's I think, the lowest of his career, the lowest in a full season, at least. And that's as the league-wide strikeout rate has continued to increase. So, mm-hmm. you know, his his defense-independent numbers don't look quite as bad as the ERA, which was over four before his appearance on Sunday. But this is clearly not what the Yankees paid for or, or hoped that they were getting when they signed him to a big deal this past winter. Yeah, and they don't, they're certainly not hurting for quality relievers either. I I'm, I wonder who shakes into that closers role by the end of the season or whether it's Dylan Batances and how long, and if it is Dylan Batances, how long Randy Levine goes before he talks to the media again. <laughs> Uh, after his comments this yeah. past off season, yeah, I mean they're going to be fine. It's I mean it's it's hard to feel bad for the Yankees or for Aroldis Chapman for that matter. But yes, his average fastball velocity down all the way to one hundred point one, which is uh, actually a decrease of one mile per hour from last season. But he has always seemed like the sort of guy who was extremely dependent on the velocity, and so it wasn't clear if he was a good long-term investment or not, because if he lost that velocity, then he'd be in trouble. On the other hand, he seemed to have so much velocity to lose before he would not be one of the hardest throwers in baseball. And of course, he still is. So it's very possible that that he'll have a few more solid outings and, and be back in that role. 
I was going to fall into the camp of he had so much velocity to lose uh-huh. that he'd last a while. And particularly because, like, he extends pretty far with his delivery. He always had a good slider. Like, it, it just something like this just didn't seem didn't seem like it was even on the horizon unless his fastball velocity dropped to like 94 mm-hmm. or something. Like he's still throwing harder than anybody else in the game. So this is surprising. But like you said, if the peripherals are not as mm-hmm. bad as the results, then maybe the long-term prognosis isn't that bad for the Yankees. But, you know, if, even if it is, they can go to Batances, they can go to Tommy Canely, they can go to to Robertson, yeah, they can David go to Robertson. 14 yeah. other guys. So Yes, and Chapman signed for four more years four at $17.2 million per he can opt out of the contract following 2019, and maybe by then they'll they'll want him to. But if so, then he probably won't. Opt outs yeah. aren't aren't great. All right. Last thing, we're going to talk to R.J. Anderson of CBS about his article about how agencies are using statistical analysis and you know trying to keep up with teams in the era of Statcast and so forth. But before that, we want to talk about another labor issue, and that mm-hmm. is that. The umpires, uh, they started wearing white white wristbands to yes. protest the, I don't know the exact wording, but the, you know, the verbal, verbal abuse, abuse that yeah. the players have been lashing out at them. I think the flashpoint was Ian Kinsler and Angel Hernandez, which, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't in the middle of that conversation, but I went back and watched it. It didn't look that bad. Yeah, but Kinsler made some public comments also about how Hernandez should be suspended and instead Kinsler was fined, but. But yeah, there's been there's been some rhetoric flying toward yeah. the umpires lately. But uh, this this protest seemed somewhat ill timed. Yeah, so there are a couple reasons why this is risible. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that Joe West and and Angel Hernandez, two probably the two most widely derided umpires uh, in the major leagues, were at the spearhead of this. Uh, the other thing is something that uh, former podcast guest uh, Levi Weaver brought up and I thought expressed well, which is like the backdrop of of protests in American society right now. Like the players are being mean to me seems like has never been smaller potatoes. Yeah, the, the bar for what constitutes protestable behavior right now is, is set pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this seems like maybe not the best time for umpires to make a, a public display here and white wristbands that don't umpires usually wear wristbands i don't know and it didn't seem like everyone was wearing them and this lasted one day until i think rob manford said that he would meet with a, a representative of the empires which seems like something that probably could have been accomplished anyway without the the protest but yeah yeah it's over already actually this whole thing has has come and gone by the time the, the podcast <laughs> yeah. is yeah this is going off, but... the most effective protest in history or <laughs> it's definitely one of the shortest lived <laughs> i don't know yeah and i mean with all that said i've i've tried to there are a couple really funny jokes about this that i couldn't help but laugh at but i've tried to take this relatively seriously cuz this is is to a certain extent mm-hmm. a labor issue you know workplace sure. not safety but you know yeah, no one wants to be insulted at their place of work yeah and there's this is a difficult, thankless job that I think that certain self-aggrandizing, mm-hmm. you know, ump show providers aside, the vast majority of umpires are doing their best and trying to keep their heads down. And it's a it's a way more difficult job than a lot of people think. So arguments mm-hmm. are part of the game. Why they have to be part of the game, it's never I've never really thought through. Tensions but, are high. You know, it's lots it's, at stake. There's uh, adrenaline yeah. flowing. Yeah, lots sure. Of testosterone lots of chemicals. On a baseball and field. and yeah. I would think that historically speaking, though, umpires probably have it better in this respect than they would have at just about any other point in baseball history, right? I mean, you hear about like Babe Ruth and John McGraw and Rabbit Moranville, like fighting umpires. Yeah, like, I mean, there were actual fights yeah. and threats to their lives and, and the crowd endangering the umpires, too. And these days you've got replay and a lot of calls you can't even argue with anymore. Or it results in an automatic mm-hmm. automatic ejection. So I would think that, that uh, probably 19th century umpires would think that this protest <laughs> was weak given what they had to go through. But yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to agitate for people not yelling yeah, at you, you when know, you do your job, fine. I don't, I don't think it's out of bounds to come together and say, hey, be less crappy to us, you know? But mm-hmm. the there are many, many mitigating factors that sort of color that that argument. Yes. And of course, these two umps, as you mentioned, at least have a, a reputation that seems fairly deserved yeah. for 
provoking some mm. of this abuse that they are taking. So yeah. <laughs> they are not necessarily always the ones trying to be conciliatory here either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's funny, but, you know, not as funny as the overwhelming public reaction has been. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think I might be more sympathetic to umpires than than your average baseball writer. <laughs> yes, that might be. Wow. That's a look in the mirror. I'm the umpire guy now. <laughs> Michael Pamman, friend of umpires. Yeah. All right. So we have anything else? Any uh, more banter? We had a lot of, we, we sort of bounced around a bit. We did. Yeah. Well, we, we covered, we went around the league, around the horn around with the Ben Lindbergh and Michael Pamman. Somebody yeah. should should name a, um, a sports talk show around yes. the horn. I'm sure that's never been done before. No, so unplanned. we're going to uh, come back after this with RJ Anderson. We're going to talk about economics and statistics. So stick around. <laughs> If you're like me, and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. Sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool top-rated hotels you want to stay in. With so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or for finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. I'm planning a bachelor party now. If you're planning one, attending one, you could use Hotel Tonight. I'm traveling now for the solar eclipse. Everything in Oregon is booked up. Again, use Hotel Tonight. Because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last-minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. All right, so if there's one thing that we hate doing on this podcast, it's actually talking about baseball. And if there's one thing we love doing on this podcast, it's talking about all the internecine and complex economic issues surrounding the sport. So uh, this past week, RJ Anderson of CBS Sports wrote an article called How Baseball Agents Are Negotiating the Gap in Information and Analytics in MLB uh, that addresses precisely this topic. So we're proud to welcome him to the podcast. How are you doing, RJ? I'm doing well. How are y'all doing? All right. So let's sort of start with the big picture. Teams, as everybody knows, are developing these like Manhattan Project style analytics (laughs) projects and agencies are typically understaffed. They don't you know, prioritize the same research. So you talk to a bunch of agents and what was the the sense that this missile gap of information, you know, how is that affecting the way they do business? So it was interesting because I felt like a lot of the agents I talked to weren't too concerned about it overall. You know, they were pretty upfront that, yeah, they don't have the staffs, they don't have uh, the same motivations to do a lot of this research because, you know, if you're a team, you're trying to win games, you're trying to evaluate players, uh, see which one's the best, see which one can help your team the most. Whereas on the agent side, your motivation is a little different. And one of the things that agents would point out is, look, our job is not to evaluate ballplayers the best. Our job is to keep our current clients happy and to find new clients, which, you know, some of that includes evaluating these players and trying to find the next hidden superstar so you can make more money in the future. But, you know, they were upfront that their motivations differ. And yes, that leads to a different route when it comes to analytics and when it comes to uh, statistical research and whatnot. So they're pretty upfront about it. They are, I guess, somewhat resigned that, yes, it can affect them on the margins. And they're concerned that, yes, it eventually it will make its way into arbitration and it'll make an already uneven playing field, even a little bit more uneven. But for the most part, they're upfront about it. There's nothing to hide there. And some of them are even confident that, you know what, it's not a big deal. You brought up something that I think a lot of people don't don't think about, which is that teams can only employ 25 major league players at a time or 40 on the 40-man roster. Players only have the one career to sell, but agencies can sort of change the size of their team. Uh, You know, they can make more money by adding more clients. So that's, it would make sense that that's how they would feel. That's the best way for them to make more money is just by expanding their client base rather than, you know, sort of chasing those, those incremental gains for one particular client. Yeah. And I think you have to view it differently if you're an agent too. Whereas, you know, we all came up reading Sabermetric stuff. We've all kind of been indoctrined into the idea that you try should try to gain an edge on the margins whenever you can. Well, if you're an agent, the marginal players aren't really where you're making your money. So you might do the calculus and figure out, you know what, I'm going to focus on getting the best possible players and I'm going to focus and prioritize my star players. 
And I raised the example of Jeff Mathis and Jose Molina in the piece. You know, if you're a team, there's a great advantage in getting a player who you see undervalued, like a Molina or a Mathis, and slotting them in over whomever your backup catcher would have been. Whereas if you're an agent, you know, you're not trying to fill a 25-man roster or a 40-man roster. You're really trying to fill, you know, a starting nine, you know, a dream team, so to speak, because that's where, you know, that's where the money is. So you're right. They do have different priorities and they can approach these things differently. And that includes, again, statistical analysis and whatnot. Yeah. And so when you say that agencies don't have the same resources as a team, I mean, they might not be companies that are as big and as valuable as a major league baseball team, which is worth well over a billion dollars, if not multiple billions of dollars, but they could afford an entry level statistical analyst or two if they wanted to, right? So for some of these, like if the return on investment of employing that person were high, then it would make sense for them to do that. So the fact that they're not probably has something to do with the fact that they feel like it just doesn't give them, it just doesn't give them as much of a competitive advantage as it might have in the past, just because teams are so up on this stuff that it's pretty tough to pull the wool over their eyes. Yeah. And I even had a quote in there from an agent turned consultant who said even Scott Boris is not making, you know, headway in the statistical analysis game. Now, Boris himself would probably disagree with that assertion, but you're right. You know, some of these agencies, they seem to be content with outsourcing their analytical uh, evaluations. And, you know, there's some interest in third party analytical stuff as well. I don't want to make it sound like all agents are, you know, just flying blind to this, but I talked to one agency. So one agency in particular, I talked to their talent scout. Um, he operates like a major league scout would. And he was talking about how he gets trackman data, not only at the events he goes to, but also through their website. And I was like, you know, what percentage would you say of the agents you work for actually want that information? Would you hand over your reports or whatever? And he said it was 60, 40 against, you know, for the most part, agents are doing the eye test, you know, they're going off. I don't want to say like basic reports, but you know, they're not getting the detailed printouts that you would perhaps expect them to get. Because again, their priorities are different than a team's priorities and they're not looking to assemble the best roster or necessarily look for a hidden gem in the same way that a team might. They're looking for a hidden superstar, you know, someone who's going to make much more money than anticipated. They're not looking for someone who is a one or two win advantage over whomever your starting second baseman is. So again, it's different priorities and it leads to different calculuses. And I suppose right now everyone is in agreement that it just doesn't make sense to pour a lot of their resources, which as you noted, are less than a team's resources into the statistical analysis game. But I guess it's important at least to keep pace with teams to a certain degree, just so that you have a good sense of what your team, what your clients are worth and what teams are playing, paying for that type of player, right? Because if you're client has some skill or is contributing in some way that you don't even know about, you might accept a a lower offer just because you think that that's what the guy's worth. Whereas a team might know, you mentioned the example of catcher framing, for instance, that has made a difference to the earnings of some guys who otherwise would have been on the margins. So it is, it it does pay, one would think, to at least be aware of of what's going on, even if you're not trying to out-analyze the teams. I agree with that, yeah. And I guess the feel I got was a lot of the agents seem to believe in maybe not the efficient market theory, but they seem to believe that, you know, this stuff will even out and their clients, like if they are a Jose Molina representative, like enough teams will be interested in that skill set that his salary will rise, even if they can't necessarily Uh market him in that sense. And, you know, agents, yeah, they have a grasp on what each team values. And obviously they're not going to have a perfect grasp, but, uh, You know, if you think about it, even through the arbitration process, whatever a team brings out in the arbitration process, well, now the agent says, you know what, that's something they're looking at. Maybe they don't value it, but they're looking at it at least. So there's a little bit of game theory involved in that stuff as well. But you're right. You know, it definitely behooves the agents to at least keep up with it. And a number of them said they do keep up with it. I mean, I again, I noted in the article that Chris Iannetta and Francisco Cervelli's representatives both used framing numbers when discussing new contracts for their clients. So that kind of stuff, you know, it gets out to the public and they kind of view it as not an equalizer because, you know, the public is going to lag behind the industry itself, but a free resource that helps close the gap. And they don't have to pay for that in the same way they might have to pay for an in-house analytics team or a third-party consultant who 
tries to create all these in his own lab. So you're right. It definitely behooves them, but they're trying to find ways around that too. This sort of goes into another point that I wanted to make where if you sort of flip the perspective of Moneyball and talk about how finding inefficiencies is really just business-friendly code for paying players less than you're worth. And, you know, it's the it's the agent's job to to make sure that those players don't get screwed because it's I mean, it's bad for business just from uh, an optics and a financial perspective. But we've seen the 2000s A's weren't doing anything that different from like the 1970s Orioles or even the 40s or 50s Dodgers. And we're at the point now where the state of the art or the market inefficiency changes like once every 18 months. So are agents sort of playing a role in in catching up or are they just trying to keep up with a cycle of innovation that's just gotten faster and faster as, as more people are paying attention to it? My feel is it's the latter. They're not trying to, you know, dictate the market. In fact, a few agents just noted that their job is not to create the market or to try to perform some statistical magic trick where they conjure these interested parties so much as it is reading the market, understanding, you know, how teams are valuing their client and whatnot. And I almost get the sense that it doesn't really matter to them why teams are willing to pay their clients 10 million or whatever, so much as, as long as they're willing to pay my client 10 million, we're in a good place. And I know that kind of, I don't know, it was hard for me to grasp that too. It's a little counterintuitive to me. But I assumed it just had something to do with the viewpoint, because, again, we're viewing this or at least we tend to view these things from a team perspective. That's how we were all introduced to these concepts, or at least that's how I was introduced to these concepts. I shouldn't generalize too much. And I suppose, you know, I do have to switch my thinking a little bit and I had to, like, reason through it on my own. Okay, why are they viewing it this way? Why are they trying to take advantage of every single inefficiency or, you know, market trend they can? But at the end of the day, it just seems like, you know, they accept that their job is to be a market reader, not a market creator, and that they have more things going on than just trying to assemble the best staff or trying to get every last penny uh, from every marginal player. You know, again, they're focused on superstars who can bring in the most money and they're focused on keeping everyone happy and then going out and getting new clients. So I just think it's that different in perspective that we kind of have to adjust for, even if Again, right off the bat, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, or at least not total sense to me, I should say. So I think those differences in perspective are important to note and keep in mind when we're talking about a subject like this. What do you think the biggest sources of the information gap are, aside from just the size of the staff, the number of people that are analyzing the information, as far as the actual difference in the information that's available to one side as opposed to the other? So I would say that's actually the driver, though, the staff. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, they just have more man hours and whatnot. But I was also say like there's different information available. So one of the things, I mean, y'all both know about StatCast, obviously. And the agencies have to go through Baseball Savant to get that information. Whereas if you talk to some team sources, MLB AM gives them a tool that you can just go right on and access that information. And, you know, that seems like a little thing. But it's just things like that where it's just more accessible for teams. And in addition to that, think about, um, to plug another article of mine, a few months ago, I wrote about where teams are getting their data from. And it's a lot of outside parties. It's a lot of third parties, whatnot. Agencies aren't going out there and investing in, you know, these cameras that allow them to break down biomechanics. And they're not investing in like modus sleeves that can help you learn a bit, a little bit more about pitcher health or what have you. So there's a lot of incentive for teams to investigate these avenues to try to get a little bit more to try to understand the game a little bit more that agencies are not necessarily going to pursue so i think that's another big thing where teams are they're incentivized to chase these new technologies these new methods that agents just aren't incentivized you know if you're an agent you don't really care how your pitcher is going to age in terms of okay is he going to be able to throw 200 innings per season over the next five years because once that contract's signed that contract is signed you know the team, that's very important because that's the difference between perhaps winning or losing. So I think it's just mostly the perspective and also the man hours and the willingness and reason to pursue these, let's call them fringe advances or, you know, uh, fringe improvements, whereas the agents just don't have any of that. I mean, this is just sort of right at the end of of your article, but the way that StatCast and, and a lot of the, you know, the the tracking data got talked about was really interesting because one of your uh, one of the people you talked to called out Darren Woman and Mike Petriello by name and said, you know, I hope that they'll make 
this more available to the public. And you framed it as a, a conflict of interest because Major League Baseball owns owns BAM Tech. They own StatCast. So if you're going into a negotiation where these sort of things are, are the issue, it's not even like whether agents would have an interest if they don't even have access to data that's going to wind up being pertinent in in a negotiation. That's just an enormous disadvantage. Yeah, and I seem more concerned about that than the agents did, if I'm being honest. I don't know if they were just being cool and, you know, stoic about it or what, but for me, that was a huge thing. And I still don't really understand how they seem so chill about it. Uh, you're right. And I guess one of the interesting things is I learned through a union source that, you know, StatCast is not admissible in arbitration cases right now, but it is admissible in, you know, free agent negotiations and whatnot. So yeah, stuff that you know teams are having easier access to is coming up, and it's going to affect you know how teams are pricing their clients and how they're you know entering these negotiations. And I talked to Vince Gennaro for that where teams get their data piece, and he laid out you know he talked about um, how some teams are using these really complex models where they're taking a player's exit velocity and his launch angle against certain types of pitchers, and they're programming him in against their schedule against their expected opponent starting pitchers in the stadiums and they're seeing how he performs that way like that's a simulation like you know we, we're all familiar with Pocota well that's like Pocota on you know steroids or whatnot and you compare that level of sophistication I don't know if it's effective I don't know how much more effective it is than just doing some of the stuff we do in the public domain but you compare that level of sophistication and you say okay how are agents supposed to keep up with this if they even can't even guarantee they're going to get 100% of the data that's made available through this system so, yeah, I'm very concerned about that for them. And, you know, there was also you mentioned the uh, Petrillo and Wilman getting named. There was also, you know, the mention of the MLPA staff council member, Greg Dreyfus, and how a lot of agents feel that he can kind of equalize the playing field because he's younger. He might have a better grasp on the realities of baseball in 2017 versus some of the uh, older councils or older members of the union. And yeah, he's like the great hope right now that eventually he's going to help equal the playing field for everyone. And whether that comes true or not, I don't know, but it's going to be really interesting to see how the union approaches this going forward. Another one of my sources, and I hope I don't answer a question ahead of time, was Andrew Zimbalist, who used to do some consulting for the union. And he mentioned that he felt, or it was his understanding, I should say, that Tony Clark doesn't give the agents as much power as they used to have. And then he went on to say, but I think Tony Clark's probably going to listen to them more going forward because it's in his best interest to do so, not just in terms of retaining his job, but also probably in getting a better deal for the players than he would if he just operated blind. There are two directions we could go from here. One is like we talk about in in player development all the time. If you What you get out of players when you're when they're in the minor leagues depends largely on what they believe their incentives are, how they believe, how they believe that they're being judged. And that's sort of, I mean, that sort of gets twisted once you get to arbitration and free agency, because what you want is wins, but you know, maybe what you're judging the the players on is not actually what's, you know, what they get incentivized to do on the field is not necessarily what they get incentivized to do uh, when it comes time to negotiate a new contract and sort of twisting that relationship seems like a, a way that, that MLB and, and teams have, you know, have, have twisted the, the free agent market as revenues have gone up. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it's really easy to preach that team mentality until, you know, the team's docking you in arbitration because you don't have this many RBIs or whatnot. And I would just say, uh, let me use this as a jumping off point that I think that's an also another interesting wrinkle here. Because, you know, the fear is that eventually StatCast and whatnot will make its way into arbitration. But if you think about it, that's probably a longer ways off than we think it might be because arbitration seems to lag a long time. You know, we're still using, you know, old school statistics, you know, batting average and RBIs and saves and all that. And those statistics have been viewed as, if not obsolete, at least significantly overvalued for what, 15 years almost now? Yeah, so, at least. Yeah, so even though StatCast isn't admissible now, even if it were, we might not even see that come out through the arbitration process and mean anything for another 15, 20 years. So, you know, there's a ticking clock, obviously, but I guess maybe we can kind of take our time here and say, you know what, there's still some time left for the union to figure things out, for agents to get on a more level playing field, and for this not to be the pitfall that it could be for the union if you just view it from, you know, our perspective. 
And this information advantage that baseball operations departments have seems to make it more worthwhile for agencies to try to do an end around, right? And go right to ownership, which is something that we've seen Scott Boris do often with success. And maybe that's partly attributable to the relationships that he's built up with owners over his decades of agenting. But also it it just makes sense because the owners might not be as experienced in baseball, as aware of the advanced stats as the GM and the GM's staff is. And so If Boris produces a big binder that massages the stats in statistically questionable ways to make his clients look good, that's not going to fool the baseball operations department, but it might fool the owner, and ultimately the owner is the one committing the money. It also maybe would impress the client, right, because it's a a tangible example of work that the agent did. The player might not realize that this binder is really just for show, that it's not actually going to get him more money from a GM, but it looks like he... His agent put a lot of work into it and it makes him sound good. And so that's probably good from a a retaining your client's perspective. But that kind of analysis, not necessarily sound analysis, but kind of analysis that produces some result that makes the player sound good is something that could help you if you try to go straight to ownership the way that Boris has. Yeah, you're talking about basically showmanship. I just know that... um, Rod Blanc, who I talked to in the piece, he actually built one of those binders-like things for Chris Iannetta. Uh-huh. And we're talking about like two or three years ago. Yeah, when Iannetta signed with the Mariners, that offseason, he had a binder for Iannetta where it noted his framing numbers and whatnot. So, yeah, the clients obviously eat that stuff up. And you've seen quotes from front office guys saying, you know what, we don't even really look at those things. Right. I mean, I heard of a, I heard that Doug Fister's book last winter actually misspelled his name. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. So Same Doug way Fisher- Craig Calcaterra did in that, that famous uh, <laughs> uh, NBC. I, I don't know that much, but yeah, which I'm sure, you know, maybe that's why Fister was unemployed for so long. Teams were like, even his agent won't get his name right. Why would we want to have him in a rotation? But you're right. That is a very interesting point. And I guess my question would be, and yes, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Do you think that going to the owner like that is more or less possible nowadays versus how it was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Based on this new school GM where it seems more business-like, I guess Mm -hmm. is the word I would use. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have fewer owners who kind of fall into that, uh, that group of like, you know, family owned team and maybe old school owner. Often now it's more corporate or the owner is someone from like the tech world who is more sympathetic to advanced stats and maybe has delegated that kind of decision making power to the baseball people who are probably better qualified to do it. So I would think that the opportunity to do that, I mean, Scott Boris seemed to have a very productive relationship with Mike Illich, right? And Mike Illich is, is no longer around. And so that breed of owner is is becoming less common. So yeah, I would think that 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 would be harder to do now and going forward. I'd go the other way. I mean, yes, you know, owners are probably more, uh, more numerically savvy than, than they were 20 years ago, but I would never underestimate the ego of people who got rich without really doing anything useful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, I, you know, talk about tech people like the appeal to that ego and the ability to you know sort of play as as if you're part of the you know part of the team you see you know jerry jones does this all the time you know ed snyder in hockey used to do it all the time i think there's still a market for Mm -hmm. that but what you know one thing that and i wanted to talk about boris you know the boris appeal to ownership directly and we talked about how agencies are spending a lot of resources chasing whales and you know, instead of, you know, getting their, their clients paid sort of evenly down the line, this just feels like another thing that is tilting the financial balance, even within the shrinking uh, player share of revenue towards superstars, as opposed to, you know, spreading the wealth around a little bit. And this is something that when I wrote about this in spring training, Brandon McCarthy brought up Doug Fister being out of job uh, specifically. And, you know, that it's just... By the time you even get to to free agency, teams are already looking past you unless you're an absolutely elite player. And is this, you know, are, are agents concerned about the wealth curve getting pushed farther and farther right, even among the players? I didn't really talk about that specifically with any of them, but I, just to repeat kind of what I said earlier, it does feel like they're kind of convinced that the macro will always even out, even if the micro they get take maybe less than a Jose Molina deserves or what have you. 
And I, yeah, I suppose I would say that they don't seem overly concerned as long as the superstars keep getting paid. And whether that's justified, whether that should be how they view it, you know, that's really up to debate. I really expected the opposite, though. I expected them to want to get, you know, the absolute top dollar for every client. But then I shifted my perspective and I'm thinking, okay, if it takes, you know, this much to make the best case for Jose Molina, maybe that balances out with what you were getting for him. Whereas, you know, Mike Trout or Bryce Harper, they're going to make top dollar and you don't have to do anything. So I guess if you're viewing, if you like that cold hearted calculus where it's all about making the most money versus, you know, getting the best possible deal for every single client, then maybe you're okay with the gaps in the classes widening. Whereas, you know, if you're viewing it maybe from our perspective where we want every single player to get paid his fair value, then yeah, you're probably not okay with this because you're right. Eventually it's going to lead to like an NBA like system, right? Where the middle class is really almost non-existent. At least that's my understanding of the NBA. I could be misspeaking there, but you're right. That's a very good point and one that probably isn't being talked mm-hmm. about enough. Yeah. And, and also you have teams that are owned by corporations or they're part of some larger financial portfolio, or maybe the ownership is distributed over a large number of investors as opposed to one person who's like head of a family who owns the team. So even if you do make that personal appeal to ownership, that owner might not have the authority really to just spend a, an enormous amount because that person is kind of uh, that person is you know subject to the whims of fellow investors or shareholders or people who can hold the owner accountable and and maybe restrict their spending. So I just wanted to ask whether you think that agents are just less valuable to players now than they used to be, in part because of this information gap. You mentioned in the piece that in the past, maybe you could pitch a player to a team that was more likely to bid for his services because it's, say, an old school team that prizes certain character attributes or, or traits of a player. And now the 30 teams all evaluate players very similarly. So it seems like there's less value to having that experience and having those contacts and knowing which team is going to give you the best value for this player. They're all kind of going to give you the same value for the player. Or, you know, it depends on market size and that sort of thing, but it's obvious to everyone really. And if the agent is not really selling you anymore, so much as just putting you out there on the market and the offers come in and you take the biggest one or, or the one that's most appealing to you, does the agent deserve as high a, a percentage or a, as, as big a cut of your profits as an agent would have in the past? So that's a good point. I would say, though, that I feel like the agent's job isn't just negotiating a contract. I feel like there's a lot of mm. uh, affairs handling and stuff like that that perhaps we overview, overlook, excuse me, because, you know, we're not interested in, you know, how Brandon McCarthy's dog gets groomed or whatever. We're, we're interested in, you know, is he making as much money as he should be? So I think your point is fair, though, that maybe the negotiation aspect is a little bit more plug and play nowadays, whereas in the past it was a little bit more complicated and a little bit more nuanced. However, I do think there's still a personal aspect there. And, you know, I read Jerry Krasnick's license to deal before I really delve into this, dove into this piece. And I thought that was very illustrative of the part I'm talking about where like there's a human side to it. You know, Dontrell Willis really liked Matt Sosnick on a level that maybe we don't anticipate a player liking an agent based on our understanding of the relationship. But I thought that that was pretty interesting, um, a pretty interesting look at how agents are more than just like, you know, agents. They're, they can also be friends. They can also be almost like a, uh, stand in family member. And I think that's particularly important for younger players who maybe don't have, uh, a bunch of, you know, much of their own family anymore. You know, you're moving away from home as a teenager or even as a college player. And you kind of need something like that, a surrogate you know, parent or whatever to a surrogate brother, whatever you want to say. So I think that their personal value in terms of interpersonal skills and being there for you and helping you with the minute tasks that ballplayers are not expected Mm -hmm. to complete on their own. I think that's still very valuable. I don't know if that is valuable enough that they should maintain the same cut because of the less stressful negotiations, let's say, but I'm also not sure I'm, informed enough or well-positioned enough to really say how much they should get. I think that's probably a question better answered by someone who's a little bit more educated and a little bit more uh, in tune with 
that. Plus, you know, it's hard for me to be like, well, you know, yeah, they should take less money. You know, like it's hard for me to sit here and take money out of other people's pockets without having that real understanding of what exactly or how exactly you should value the various components of their job. So I know that's a non-answer. Hopefully it's a satisfying non-answer though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the non-negotiation stuff that you bring up is probably more difficult and more important today than it would have been in the past because players are making so much money that figuring out what to do with it and how to invest it wisely. And, you know, if you got to set up a charitable foundation and all this off the field stuff that might not have been an issue for many players decades ago and, and now very much is. So I think you're right about that. I would say that the importance of having like a professional negotiator uh, operate on your behalf has never been clearer to me as as it's become watching Rob Manfred wipe the floor with Tony Clark uh, over the past few years. And, you know, just pretty much every facet of of labor management push and pull that, that we've seen since the two of them took over. And this sort of came up when we're talking about um, Greg Dreyfus and and his potential role in making sure that teams don't completely screw players when they by bringing in new, um, you know, new data to to salary negotiations or arbitration or whatever form that takes. And it, it just feels to me that ownership doesn't give the players anything without giving something back up. So you know whether they get some concession on Statcast and. You know, and they just continue to throw amateurs under the bus, or you know what? It, it I just wonder what else that that they have now that they like that they would be willing to give up to make sure that you know this sort of arcane seeming uh, set of data doesn't turn into another way that ownership is very very quietly taking hundreds of millions of dollars back from them. Yeah, I'm concerned about that. And I'm concerned about Clark in general. I mean, everybody seems to praise him as an individual, and I don't doubt that for a minute. But this is a very difficult role for anyone to take on, let alone someone who doesn't really have a history as a negotiator or on the labor side of things and other disputes. And, you know, maybe he grows to become a very good or at least acceptable union head. But for my money, I'm concerned about where this could head for the players and, you know, I think you have to be because if the players keep getting, you know, worse and worse deals, eventually we're going to have a situation where there's going to be a labor conflict. So if you like baseball, you kind of have to root for, you know, the union to get their stuff together and to do better in future negotiations. Otherwise, you're going to head for a work stoppage one way or the other. And, you know, I don't think anyone wants to see that, even if it means, you know, or, I think it'd be me. fun to cover. I kind of want to see it. I was rooting for a lockout last winter. I don't want to phrase that incorrectly. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying, even if it means the players get a better deal, we don't want to see work and stoppage. Obviously, you want to see the players get a deal, better deal, but I think we want to see the players get a better deal without having to you know, lose a season or two or what have you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I am concerned about Tony Clark, even if I can respect him as a human being. I just, I don't know. I hope he's the right man for their job, but I have my concerns. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and I've been really critical of him, but he's in a really tough situation given the how labor hostile the the public is and also his opponent like one thing that i think the the goofy uncle act that rob manfred's doing has really obscured that he is better at this than maybe anybody in the history of professional sports i think he's the best labor negotiator on either side that certainly baseball seen since marvin miller and it's possible that if tony clark's opponent were bud selig then he'd be doing better but i mean he's just in a, a really really difficult situation yeah, I actually heard an interesting story about Manfred as it pertains to an arbitration hearing. So uh, basically the team, excuse me, the agent was representing an international born player and they talked up in an arbitration hearing about how much he meant to that market for that team. And, you know, they went on their little break and the league came back and Manfred had supplied the team with the information about exactly how important that market was. And they broke out this data and just completely wiped the floor of that part of the argument. And you can say, well, maybe that wasn't important or what have you. But yeah, Manfred is, I mean, he's been, you know, he's been built for this basically and he knows exactly what he's doing. And yeah, I guess that's a very interesting point you made that, you know, he sort of gives off the, you know, the impression that, oh, G-Shock, you know, all shocks or whatever, but. I'm open to anything. I'm, I'll consider that <laughs> idea. Yeah. 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 But, you know, and you know what, to his credit, that's probably a pretty good act to take because the alternative act would probably not net him support or sympathy or what have you. But you're right. He's, uh, he's pretty good by all accounts and it's showing. 
Yeah, and the owner's revenue and their financial well-being has really become divorced from the games in a way that the players haven't because the owners have all of this revenue that's coming in from BAMTech, which is just this incredibly lucrative spinoff, essentially, of Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And then you have the giant TV deals that the teams are getting paid for and, and have been paid for. So if if they're if there's a, a strike situation that arises, uh, the players are, are, they have much more at stake. I think they have much more incentive to play than the owners do because they could weather uh, a stoppage in the way that the players couldn't. And I don't know what Tony Clark can do about that or could have done about that. Some of those trends predate him or seem to be out of his control. So that's just another way in which, as Michael said, it's a, a tough spot to be in. I agree with that. And let's not forget, though, there's also the looming TV bubble. Right. You know, how are, the hell is that going to play out? I really have no idea. But I guess we're going to see what Manfred and Clark are getting paid for when that time comes. And I don't know. It seems like it might be coming sooner than later, you know. So that's going to be an interesting dilemma and an interesting conflict when it does arise. All right. Well, that'll wrap up our discussion. RJ, it's been a, a pleasure having you on. We'll have you back when there's a lockout or, you know, maybe even sooner than that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. That's the first time I've ever been told that. So uh, the lockout part, not the pleasure having you on. Although, you know, for both of them seem about as likely, you know, so. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you can follow RJ on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson. You can read his work at cbssports.com and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, RJ. So thanks to RJ for coming on, and we will be back Thursday with another episode. In the intervening time, Ben will go see a solar eclipse. Yes. So you have glasses? Do you have equipment? Well, I am attending a game that is being held by the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes, who are a minor league baseball team in Oregon. And... There's a partnership with NASA, so NASA will be there explaining the eclipse and handing out eclipse glasses, so my eyes will be protected. And That's good. Yeah, by the time most of you are hearing this, the eclipse probably will have already taken place, assuming that the uh, astronomers' calculations were correct. It would be a quite a big flub if they got that wrong after all this. So hopefully that will be fun. They're, they're starting the game, I think, before the peak of the eclipse and then pausing the game for the eclipse and then resuming the game after the eclipse. So it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to this event. Pausing it so the outfielders don't lose a fly ball in the moon, right? Yes, exactly. Right. That could be a problem. So I will let you know how it was on Thursday. Yeah, well, let me know what the moon looks like. <laughs> and we'll, oh, it reminds me, Curtis Granderson got traded over the, over the weekend, yeah. too. You broke up that that dueling no-hitter on Sunday, so yes. congratulations to, <laughs> yeah. to Curtis Granderson. All right, we've been, we've been all over the place this mm-hmm. week, but we are still part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Yes, we so are. Thanks for listening to the Ringer MLB show, and we will talk to you again on Thursday. Indeed. Indeed.